And we are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Welcome to another new episode, one that I'm really excited to share with all of you. So thank you very much again for electing to join me. There are tons, hundreds of thousands of podcasts, and not to mention probably dozens of other Notre Dame football podcasts or history or college football podcasts in which you can tune into. So I am ever so grateful that you are here with me today. I hope also that you had a very happy Thanksgiving, hopefully spent with loved ones, family, or friends. I was on a bit of a trip myself, took the family down to Florida, and so if you hear a bit of a ruffling of papers here on the desk, that's just because I'm still kind of trying to get put away from from the Florida trip, and so uh, I don't have my papers and notes and all that as meticulously organized as I generally do. So again, thank you to all of you. In this past month alone, we have we have had folks from 25 different states and five different countries tune into the show and. For that, I am extremely honored and gracious. So thank you to Joseph Rakish, whose song, Knut Rockney, serves as our theme song. For those of you who are veterans around here, that song is instantly recognizable. But if you're a new listener and you're like, what did I just hear? The song is called Knut Rockney, very, very appropriately titled, and it's by Joseph Rakish. And you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, pretty much however you listen to music. You can find the song as well as many of his uh, other songs. So you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts. So if you go into your iPhone and click the purple icon, the purple podcast icon, you can find the show there. Please subscribe and you'll be notified of all new episodes as they are aired. And the same can be said for Spotify. So head over to Spotify if that's your preferred method of listening to podcasts and you can listen to the show there as well. If you want the URL for the actual website, it's onwardtovictory.podbean.com and you can also listen to the show on the Podbean mobile app. So feel free to jump over to the Podbean site because it was just recently renovated. Thank you to some Thanks to some, I should say, generosity from some of our consent from some of our consensus all-Americans. Pardon me there. So if you'd like to become a consensus all-American, these are the folks that support the show monetarily. And as you've probably picked up on, if you're a veteran around here, I do call out the most recent consensus all-Americans pretty much every show. So if you'd like to give monetarily, you can jump over to paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation. Or if you want to set up like a little, you know, I want to give the show X amount of dollars per month. Any, no denomination is too small. I promise you, this show does cost money to put on and my goal is to always present it ad-free because as you are probably aware, most of our episodes are story-based and I feel as though ads would really disrupt the flow of the story. So, anywho, if you'd like to help, paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast so feel free to head over to either of those sites if you'd like to make a monetary donation to the show and become a consensus all-american again thank you to our consensus all-american adam p from fort wayne indiana who is sponsoring this episode so again thank you adam i believe this is the fourth episode you've sponsored and i can't tell you how much i appreciate it 
And finally, if you'd like to jump over to the show's headquarters, it's facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast. You can access, you know, all of the information, all of the analysis, the new show announcements, all that through the Facebook page. It's all kind of funneled through there. So again, it's facebook.com slash onward to victory podcast. And if you are just interested in sending the show a good old fashioned email, Yes, one of those. You can go and send a, an email to onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. Send the show anything that you'd like. And I always try to read emails over the air. So here we go. We're on episode 12. And this could very easily be the Ian Book episode because, as the veterans are aware, we try to assign each episode a player who wore that number for Notre Dame. But given the most recent announcement that Ricky Waters has been. Um, advanced in the Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame voting, I believe that he is a very worthy bearer of this episode. And of course, he wore number 12 in his time at Notre Dame. So this episode shall be henceforward dubbed the Ricky Waters episode. And so before we push on to our kind of our feature, which I'm really excited about, I just wanted to kind of talk about the current edition of the Irish. So the 2019 regular season just wrapped up with a very strong 45-24 win at Stanford. And if you watch a lot of Notre Dame football, then you know Notre Dame has some issues winning at Stanford. So it was really good to see it was very close game until a blocked punt from Isaiah Foskey, uh, a first year a freshman at Notre Dame, really kind of turned the tide. And then the second half kind of belonged to the Irish. But the Irish did cap off that 45-24 win with, and it is our third straight 10-win season. And I know that some folks, regardless of which team you like, whether it's Notre Dame or not, you know, aren't going to be heavily impressed with this season. But the two losses, the close one at Georgia, and then of course the one at Michigan, which unfortunately we've talked about ad nauseum on this show. Yeah, that one wasn't very close. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But however, this is the third straight 10 win season, and this is the first time that the program has had three straight 10 win seasons since 1991, 92, and 93. So regardless of how you feel about this year, whether you feel like the, the team overachieved, which Vegas put us at nine and a half wins for the season, so I feel like we did overachieve in a lot of sense because we just went, went over the money line, but this is the first time in 26 years that this has happened. And moreover, so we averaged 37.1 points per game on offense, which was 14th best in the country. This is through 12 games, mind you. Um, and then points against, we averaged 18.7, which was 17th best in the, com uh, in, the, in the country. Pardon me. So 14th and 17th best offense and defense for points uh, scored and points allowed, respectively. And it's been quite a while. And normally we're not anywhere near both categories in the top 20, but... This is the first time since 1996 that we have had a top 17, you can even say, offense and top 17 defense from a points scoring standpoint. So again, first time in, what is that, 23 years. So we're in a very, very prosperous time here for Notre Dame football, and it's been very exciting to see. Now, you can look at the play of some individual players and, and say, yes, they, they regress. Like, for instance, you know, Ian Book certainly feels like he regressed. If you look at his stat line, 33 touchdowns and six interceptions, that's really good. And, you know, after that Michigan game in particular, he did turn it up and brought his play up, up certainly a notch, uh, whether it be through the air or running on the ground. But he did, his accuracy did suffer by about nine percentage points, which is a really big drop. 
So he'll be one we talk about a lot in upcoming episodes because we're not 100% sure if he is going to come back for his fifth year. He does have a year of eligibility left, so will he make the jump to the NFL? We don't know. And I think just, I'd love to see him back for another year, but I think most of us would agree that it would be very beneficial for Ian to come back and just have one more year uh, to kind of sharpen his uh, sharpen his game up a little bit, uh, sharpen his accuracy and all that. So we'll kind of see how it how it kind of shakes out here in the coming months. And I played collegiate defensive end, albeit at the Division three level, but I think a, certainly a bit of a disappointment for me personally um, is, is the combined efforts of Julian Aquar and Khaled Kareem. They had a couple games where they really shone, but honestly, they had more games where they were almost nowhere to be found. And I am not so naive as to think you look at a sack number, and for Kareem it was 5.5, and for Aquar it was 4. You can't look at a sack number alone and say that that is the end-all tell-all of your season success. I, I would personally... Be, I would rail against that again, having played the position for a long time. And this is probably aimed less at Kareem and more at Aquara, but you know, I feel like that was going to be the bread and butter, and that that was a unit that could single-handedly almost win you a football games, win you football games by pressuring the passer. So I feel like that even though Kareem is getting really high NFL draft grades, I do feel like that that duo together kind of underachieved. But you know, you look at guys like linebackers Drew White and Asmar Bilal and Jeremiah Usukoromoa, those three right there, they stepped it up. And frankly, they were fun to watch by the time the season was over. This is a group that was very, very heavily criticized over the preseason and going into the season. And, you know, who would have thought that, you know, those are the top three tacklers on the team. So what, uh, 200 and... Let's see, 218, 218 tackles. Sorry, I studied history in college. I was never much of a math person, but 218 tackles between those three and 26 and a half tackles for loss. What a huge lift that was. What a huge lift. And Kyle Hamilton, yet another, well, another phenom on the defensive side. Uh, four interceptions and six pass breakups. So first on the team in interceptions and tied for first in pass breakups. And did I mention he is just a freshman? So offensively, to jump back over to the offensive side, Chase Claypool. My goodness, what a season he had. I will miss that man dearly. And Cole Komet seems like he's coming back for another year, possibly. So it'd be awesome to have Cole back in the fold, even though I'd would not blame him for a minute if he were to make the jump to the NFL. And just so you know, we'll do a more in-depth breakdown of the season uh, in the next episode once we get our bowl opponent. But uh, And then also, just again, to kind of give some laud out, the specialists. Jonathan Doerr, 13 of 16 for uh, field goals. And I'm not sure anyone really thought that he was going to have that great of a year uh, coming in from Justin Yoon, who was our staple at the position for, for four years. So he had a really nice year. And Jay Bramblett, although he had a couple shanks, but that's going to happen when you punt the ball, what, 59 times. But he did have uh, an average of just, just a shade under 40 yards. And he did put 18 of them inside of the 20-yard line, and five were 50-plus yards. And most importantly, no blocked punts. So Bramblett and Doerr really did thrive, and it's really exciting because Bramblett's just a freshman and Doerr is just a junior, so we'll still have them coming in next year. So lots of really, really positive things. And 
I think, uh, I think Notre Dame has a very bright future, even heading into the 2020 season. And speaking of the 2020 season, looking at the schedule here, so... It's gonna be it's gonna be a good it's gonna be a really fun season to watch. We've got some really exciting opponents. So we are opening the season against Navy over in Dublin at Aviva Stadium. That's gonna be fun on Saturday, August 29th. And then the schedule goes as follows: Arkansas at home, Western Michigan, continuing that partnership with the Mid American Conference at home, Wake Forest on the road, and now Saturday, October 3rd. Here is one to circle. It is playing Wisconsin, the Badgers in Green Bay. So. That will be uh, that will be a fun one. That that I think where they're playing at Lambeau, which there's going to be all kinds. I guarantee you, but spoiler, I guarantee you for that week we will do an episode about Curly Lambeau, who played football at Notre Dame. Uh, but that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be more difficult games on the slate. But home against Stanford, at Pittsburgh, home against Duke, and then Saturday, November seventh, home against Clemson. Circle that one. That's going to be a tough one. We have Wisconsin in Green Bay and Clemson at home. Those are probably our top two games. And then we're at Georgia Tech, home against Louisville, and then at the Coliseum, the Memorial Coliseum against USC. So, again, Navy, Arkansas, Western Michigan, Wake Forest, Wisconsin, Stanford, Pittsburgh, Duke, Clemson, Georgia Tech, Louisville, and USC. So, one, two, three. Three home game, or excuse me, three true road games. Now the Dublin game against Navy is is a home game, but it's also in Dublin, Ireland, and I believe that the Saturday, October third game against Wisconsin is considered a home game, despite it play, be playing being played in Wisconsin. I think it's our Shamrock Series game, so not a great home game there, playing in Wisconsin's backyard. But there's going to be a lot of good matchups next year, and I am so confident heading in to 2020 and I think if Ian comes back we have a lot to be confident about and otherwise if not you know it's a next man up mentality so well let's move on to the next bit here let's move on to the next bit so that was a little bit about uh, very very cursory recap of you know statistical recap of the regular season and a look into next year and so without further ado let's let's jump into our feature presentation it's kind of a fun story it won't be as long as the ones in the, in the past few episodes but fun one nonetheless so i give you once in a lifetime shot when presumptive number one pick rocket ismail spurned the nfl shield right after this All right, so you might be thinking, why Rocket Ismail? Why now? If you saw the Virginia Tech game, I believe, he delivered quite a rousing speech to the team. I don't remember if it was before the game, at halftime, or after the game, but you could just tell he is a bundle and a ball of just kinetic energy, and I'm not much of a hugger, but if he was here now, I'd probably try to give him a hug, uh, try to get some of that, uh, soak in some of that energy and the kind of those good vibes off of him. But when I was growing up, I was a paper boy. That was actually the first job I ever had. And I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so one of the things I do every single day, without fail, uh, my siblings and my parents as a uh, testament to this is I read the sports page religiously from the beginning to the end every single day. And 
Uh, I remember when he was with, uh, when he signed with the Cowboys uh, after his uh, Canadian Football League career was over. Spoiler alert! But, uh, but so growing up in Fort Wayne, you know the the paper I worked for, I delivered, I should say, covered Notre Dame alums pretty closely once they got to the NFL or the MLB, whatever have you. So I feel like I was always reading about Rocket and. He ended up becoming kind of one of my favorite players, and I collected a bunch of his cards, uh, particularly when he played for the Carolina Panthers. But again, I just feel like uh, given how close he was to the team just not too terribly long ago, and <laughs> it kind of resurrected a lot of old feelings that I had towards him. So let's, let's talk about him. So Raga Bismile was born on November 18, 1969 in Elizabeth, New Jersey though his family quickly moved to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where he was raised. During his prep years, he was a star at Elmer L. Myers High School, which was located in Pennsylvania's Lehigh River Valley. Ismail was quickly dubbed a blue-chip recruit at the running back position. At 5'10", 175 pounds, Ismail certainly wasn't going to draw any comparisons to 1980s running back Eric Dickerson, who stood six foot three and tipped the scales at 220 pounds, but he was no doubt complimented exceedingly well by his 4.24 second 40-yard dash time. During this time, it was fairly unusual for Penn State head coach Joe Paterno to lose an in-state recruit to a fellow blue-blooded program, again, particularly in the 1980s. But this is exactly what happened when Ismail signed on to coach Lou Holtz's Irish program in 1988. When Ismail got to South Bend in the summer of 88, the Irish running back position was already fairly crowded with, now I'll get a load of this, Mark Green, who played four seasons for the Bears, Tony Brooks, who was drafted by the Eagles, Anthony Johnson, who rushed for nearly 3,000 yards in 10 NFL seasons, the late Rodney Culver, who played in four seasons in the NFL before being killed in a plane crash, and future five-time Pro Bowler Ricky Waters, who would win a Super Bowl and rush for over 10,000 yards in his career and score 91 touchdowns. Can you imagine being a running back in those position meetings or a coach? Anyways, so needless to say, being the sage and shrewd evaluator of talent and roster management, that Holtz was, Ismail was quickly moved to wide receiver, and he drew the praise of Holtz for not complaining about the roster move, or the position move, pardon me. So on the national championship winning 12-0 1988 Notre Dame team, Ismail was quickly dubbed Rocket due to his explosive play and blinding speed. Though he only pulled in 12 receptions, which was the third highest on the team, they went for 331 yards, which was an astounding 27.6 yards per catch. On special teams, he managed to even be even more electrifying, averaging over 36 yards per kickoff return with two touchdowns and over 14 yards per punt return. Even he was surprised by his quick success. I really didn't expect to make much of an impact so early, he told the Notre Dame Football Review after the season. Rocket continued the breakout the following season in 1989, and he really cemented his college football legacy. On September 16th, Notre Dame met Michigan in a 1-2 matchup. With Notre Dame holding a slim 7-6 lead at halftime, Rocket took the opening kickoff back 88 yards for a touchdown. 
This was the first kickoff return for a touchdown Michigan had given up in 32 seasons. So while still holding a slim 17-12 lead, Rocket fielded another kickoff, taking it 90 yards for his second kickoff return touchdown of the day. And for his efforts during the game, he was featured on the next cover of Sports Illustrated. All told, Rocket would finish with 1,013 scrimmage yards on only 91 touches and four touchdowns. And he added three additional touchdowns in the return game as well. The Rocket was named a consensus All-American his junior season in 1990 after notching another 1,236 scrimmage yards with five touchdowns, as well as yet another touchdown on a kickoff return. He finished second in the Heisman Trophy voting to Brigham Young quarterback Ty Detmer in a very close vote. After his junior season, Rocket decided to forego his final year of eligibility at Notre Dame and declare himself eligible for the NFL Draft. It was an easy decision to make. Rocket was a bona fide star, he had a catchy nickname, and infinite marketability. And he was also the consensus first overall pick by many of the pundits in the upcoming draft. What happened next was later described with the following phrase, quote, It wouldn't happen today. It was a once-in-a-lifetime shot. Now, how about some context? Those words were spoken by Bruce McNall, the owner of the National Hockey League's Los Angeles Kings, a team he had owned a majority stake in since 1987. On February 25, 1991, McNall and his investor group had purchased the Toronto Argonauts, of the Canadian Football League for $5 million. Let that number soak in for a minute. Now I know $5 million is a lot of money, certainly a lot of money to me, but the Argonauts are currently valued at, according to Forbes magazine, $1.3 billion. Whew. Now I should probably mention just who McNall had in his investor group. While he owned a 60% stake in the Argos, the other 40%, the minority owners, were made up of, wait for it, Wayne Gretzky and Canadian actor John Candy. Both Gretzky and Candy were household names in both Canada and the United States. But though fairly popular in Canada, McNall wanted to make the CFL a household name and a household league in all of North America. Yes, including the United States. His two-pronged plan consisted of the following steps. Step one, find celebrity minority owners to help with marketing and create buzz. Check. Step two, sign Rocket Ismail from right under the NFL's collective noses. But why would the most famous collegiate athlete in the country head north to play for the hardly relevant CFL? This was the true issue for McNall. He pursued the only option he found viable. Be like Don Vito Corleone from The Godfather and make Rocket an offer he couldn't refuse. According to an excellent article from Vice Magazine, McNall remembers Gretzky having some reservations about the high cost of signing Ismail. Candy, who had grown up as an Argonauts fan, had no such qualms. Quote, This franchise meant more to John than it meant to anybody, including myself even, McNall said. It was a childhood dream come true for him. When I brought up the idea of Rocket, his enthusiasm went through the roof. It had just encouraged me even more to make sure I got this deal done if I could." End quote. 
So McNall put all of his chips on the table. Four years, $26.2 million. An outrageous sum of the time. Listen to the particulars of the deal according to an article from DaveManual.com. So a guarantee for almost all the money, $3.5 million in annual base salary, 10% ownership of the Argonauts by the end of the deal, $5 per seat sold in Toronto for anything over $40,000 per game in attendance, $1 million guaranteed endorsement revenue per year, a tax differential clause where the Toronto ownership group would make up the difference for higher Canadian taxes, a luxury box at the Sky Dome, and a new car up to a maximum value of $100,000. How about that contract? So despite not having played a professional down, Ismail was looking at a deal that would allow him to become the world's highest paid football player. And no, not just in the CFL, but in the world. If the deal was inked, Rocket would make more than Emmett Smith, John Elway, Joe Montana, Barry Sanders, Jerry Rice, everyone. And to put it more into perspective, the salary cap for a CFL team in 2018 was only $5.2 million. So adjusted for inflation, Rocket's yearly salary would equal $6.4 million. The contract, for multiple reasons, was revolutionary given the tax incentives and awarding Rocket a stake in other business ventures. The New England Patriots, holder of the first overall pick in the draft, efficiently convinced that they would not be able to match the Argos deal and convince Rocket to come to the NFL, traded the pick to the Dallas Cowboys. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones had his sights set on the Rocket and met with him multiple times, but to no avail. It was announced the night before the draft that Ismail, had signed with the Toronto Argonauts. Again from Vice, McNall spent so much money because he calculated that Ismail's fame would help him recoup his investment. He envisioned fans coming out in droves to watch him. He believed the receiver could help the Argonauts sign bigger sponsorship and media deals too. He also thought that Ismail's skills were uniquely suited to the CFL's bigger field, which is 10 yards longer and 12 yards wider than the NFL field. More than that, McNall said he had no reservations about being personally responsible for paying Ismail and guaranteeing the contract. The league's executives and teams didn't mind his creative accounting either. He said, quote, As you well know, if I can find a way to get around things, I will. The CFL was a Mickey Mouse play. Next to the NHL, which I was used to, all of the other CFL owners were so thrilled at the idea of being able to get attention to their teams. Every time Rocket played in their arenas, selling out their arenas, how much difficulty do you think it was? They made a fortune. On July 18, 1991, Rocket made his CFL debut in the Argos home opener against the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Jim Belushi did the ceremonial coin flip to begin the game, and the Blues Brothers performed in the eventual 41-18 Argos win. The game was witnessed by over 41,000 fans, roughly 10,000 more than they had averaged the previous season. The Argos would win the Grey Cup that year, which is the CFL equivalent of the Super Bowl, and Rocket was named as the Grey Cup MVP and a CFL All-Star. He would ultimately play two seasons in the CFL and another nine seasons in the NFL for the Raiders, Cowboys, and Panthers before finally retiring in 2003. 
So what happened with Bruce McNall? Bruce McNall sold the Argonauts in May of 1994 amidst legal and financial troubles of his own making. December of 94, McNall pleaded guilty to defrauding six banks to the tune of $236 million. For this, he was sentenced to 70 months in prison and told to repay his victims $5 million. Rocket Ishmael was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame in 2019. This is an interesting story because something that Bruce McNall, though he was a fairly unscrupulous businessman, something that he did call correctly is that, that this will never happen again. It was a once-in-a-lifetime shot. It's, very, it's not very often, I should say, that the NFL loses things like this. The NFL and all of its power and might and dominance very rarely would be outclassed or outbidded for anything. But we'd like to harken back to that one time, what was it, 28 years ago, that they were. And not only was it an, an outclassed job, but it was for the at the time, consensus number one overall pick in the NFL draft. So, though Rocket did finish his career in the NFL, this was this did mark an instance in, in football history where, for one day, the CFL could put their foot on the chest of the NFL and declare victory. We'll be right back with the inaugural George Gipp Minute right after this. And I'd like to debut a new part of the program called the George Gipp Minute. Now, it'll undoubtedly be longer than a minute because I do love George Gipp and I like to talk about him. But essentially, I'd like to share just one interesting or funny or crazy anecdote of George Gipp's life because there are plenty of them. And if you know me, then you know George Gipp is one of my absolute favorite Irish players. And if you haven't listened to, I believe, episode four, which is the Charming Rogue, the story of George Gipp, go back and listen to the Charming Rogue because it's chock full of these little anecdotes and it's just so interesting. And I think one reason why Gipp remains really interesting to me is because I think the more that I study him, the more that I realize that if we were peers and we were contemporaries and given our personalities, the chances are very, very good that we would not be friends um, because we don't really have much in common. But what I think is really interesting about Gipp is, you know, he was very brusque, yet not standoffish, very aloof, but not arrogant. And this is, these are combinations of things that you don't find very often in people. So he really just truly marched to the beat of his own drum. And there is no better example of this, I believe, that when in 1917, so Gip has just finished his first year at Notre Dame. And so we returned home to Lorium, Michigan in, in the summer of 1917 to find that like thousands of other young men in the United States, he had been drafted to fight in the war to end all wars, World War I. Gip was in fact drafted. He had not enlisted. He was drafted. So, but when the train left Lorium for basic training, George Gip was nowhere to be found. So what was the problem? Well, the Lorium Draft Board had not issued a deferment for Gip, so he was then considered a draft dodger and subject to arrest and prosecution. But, inexplicably, no one seemed to mind that Gip had skipped the train. 
which given the fact that he was still playing every single day for the Lorium semi-pro baseball team, everyone in town would have been keenly aware of. This was Gip in a nutshell. He did whatever he wanted to do, seemingly. That has been the George Gip Minute. I hope you enjoyed that little anecdote. It's one of my little, it's one of my favorites, I should say. So I guess that brings our program to a close. I hope you enjoyed the bit about Rocket Ismail. Uh, again, I think it's really interesting, you know, that one day that the CFL tr it truly triumphed over the NFL, something that is surely never going to happen again. And this is coming in at a little bit of a shorter episode, but I'm sure you don't mind. Our next episode will be a full season recap and probably and or a preview of our bowl game. So we're going to sit pat and wait for our bowl game, see which one we get, see who our opponents are. But I can promise you that on this show, I will be breaking it down. I'll be breaking down the game, the potential matchups, giving a prediction and analysis and all that. So just stand pat, wait for this. But in the meantime, if you want to go back and listen to any of the previous episodes, whether it be about jumping Joe Savaldi, the last episode, or the one before that about the mysterious Knut Rockney plane crash, whether it be the Clashmore Mike, the mascot of Notre Dame, the Irish Terrier, or if you want to, we just finished the Stanford game here in 2019, but if you want to revisit the 2012 game, Game of Inches, that was episode three. If you want to listen to a conversation I was able to have with Jim Augustine, who owns Augie's Locker Room, a memorabilia store in South Bend, Indiana, a Notre Dame one, feel free to go back and listen. There's some really good stuff that's kind of slowly accumulating. It's getting to be fairly impressive, I think. So don't hesitate. But in the meantime, this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And I am your host, Alex Painter, extremely proud to preside a podcast over a 10-2 Notre Dame football team. And as always, go Irish.